Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we're going to talk about Marie Curie. Now, she might not seem like an alchemist to you, and I wouldn't say you're wrong. In fact, the reason I got into this show is that I love the history of science. But seeing how Marie Curie is, is a little bit outside of our normal scope and time frame of the show, I'm going to be honest and note that this show is more for me. I'm sorry, my dear listeners. In a way, in a very loose way, it ties into alchemy in the way that um, the Curies discovered that elusive transmutation in nature that does in fact happen that I've been reading about in all of my medieval and early modern alchemy books, which alchemists assumed must happen. Um, So we're going to take a look at the gap between alchemy and modern atomic theory, which I I do think is kind of interesting even for the show to to see where, um, how the two differ quite a bit between the early modern um, way that they viewed matter and then, you know, modern atomic theory. Not that this is only for me as a as a uh, gimme for you guys, since this is outside the, the normal scope of the of the podcast, we'll reveal the secret of transmutation of mercury and even platinum into gold at the end of the podcast. No tricks, once and for all, the real deal, how you can actually do it today uh, are, are you serious? using modern science, no alchemical secrets, plain English, I'll tell you how to make gold from mercury. So you need to stay tuned is what you're saying. Yep. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, sometimes we joke about maybe we'll tell you how to make gold today. Sometimes maybe we won't. Today we're going to do it. I'm just we're going to tell you how to make gold today. So b- before we dive into someone from the turn of the 20th century, let's look at what happened between, let's say, Isaac Newton's time and Marie Curie. In uh, 1789, the first law of cons- conservation of mass was formulated by Antoine Lavoisier which states that the total mass in a chemical reaction remains constant, okay? So that means that when you have an input and the output between a chemo- at before and after a chemical reaction, that mass stays the same, which, again, that's, that seems obvious to us today, but that wasn't really formulated in, until 1789. And then the second that, that really um, puts alchemy in the past was the law of definite proportions. This was first proven by the French chemist Joseph-Louis Proustan, pardon my French, about 10 years later in 1799. And this law states that if a compound is broken down into its, con- into its constituent elements, then the masses of the constituents will always have the same proportions, regardless of quantity or source of the original substance. Are, are you with me so far? So if you break something down, you have the same ratio, basically, right? So, you know, H2O is water, but if you break it down, you still have twice as many oxygen as you do hydrogen. That's, that's basically it. You have the same ratio, even if you break it down into oxygen and hydrogen. So John Dalton, he, he's a really important figure. Um, John Dalton studied and expanded upon, upon this previous, these previous two laws and developed the law of multiple proportions. So before we had definite proportions, now we have multiple proportions. So John Dalton is, is an interesting figure because I actually mentioned him in my book because I have to 
define, at least for myself, the definitive end of the period of alchemy. Okay, And in my book, I, I state that as in 1803, when John Dalton published the book Atomic Theory, I, that's, to me, that's the, my arbitrary marker for the final nail in the coffin of alchemy. So alchemists came after him, yes, this is true, and alchemy had, but also alchemy had long since been kind of disregarded as a serious field of study, even like 100 years before. Uh, and there was even alchemists in the 20th century. Um, but, but to me, mainstream scientists of the day, when, when his book came out, to me, that's the final nail in the, nail in the coffin. Alchemy is dead in 1803. If, if you've got to put a date on it, that's, that's my date. Um, even though it was in decline for a century before then. So what he says is taking the law of conservation of energy and the definite proportions, he noticed that elements combine in certain ratios. So he wrote about chemical compounds in the modern sense, which is, which is why I like his, his writing. And he presented some of the first guesses of atomic weights. Um, this is also John Dalton. So this, this is a really kind of a switch from the old to the new. So this coincided with the very early classification attempts of systematizing the elements into what is now the periodic table. At that time, it was in no way uh, our modern periodic table. That didn't happen until like a, maybe 100 years later or 70 years later. But, you know, you started to see these classifications. In, it was coming together. Yeah, you, you start to see like groups of materials that have similar properties and they started to group them together. Okay, so by this time, it was contemporary understanding that atoms were indivisible and that gold is an element. So that's already, that already differs from, uh, from alchemists because alchemists thought that gold consisted of sulfur and mercury, right? Now, alchemists did insist that transmutation happens in nature, that one element changed into another element in nature, like this naturally happens. And they even had empirical evidence, uh, which we talked about before. So... Were they right? Well, let's take a look at Marie Curie. So Marie Sklodowska Curie, she lived from 1867 until 1934. She was a Polish and naturalized French physicist and chemist. So she was born Maria Salomea Sklodowska in Warsaw, in what was then the Kingdom of Poland, which was part of the Russian Empire. Okay, her father, Vladislav Sklodowski, taught mathematics and physics which were subjects that Maria was to pursue eventually. And he was also the director of two Warsaw Gymnasia, which is like uh, high school, high schools, yeah. for, for boys. After Russian authorities eliminated laboratory instruction from the Polish schools, he brought much of the lab laboratory equipment home and instructed his children in its use. So you can see that that, that education really kind of went from, from father to daughter there. Yeah. Uh, and probably really inspired her to get into this, this, uh, this type of science. Yep. In 1891, she followed her sister to study in Paris. Marie was, uh, had begun her scientific career in Paris with an investigation of the magnetic properties of various steels, commissioned by the Society of the Encouragement of Natural Industry. That same year, uh, uh, Pierre Curie entered her life, and a very influential for, uh, figure in her life as well. Uh, it was their mutual interest in natural sciences that drew them together, and uh, maybe the romance came after that. So they discovered a couple of new elements, which is, which is one thing they're really known for. And in uh, 1895, Wilhelm Röntgen discovered the existence of x-rays, which in German is even called the Röntgen. Oh. Yeah, it's not yes. called x-ray. They're not as cool, basically. That's... Now, the, mechan the mechanism behind their production was not yet understood, but the following year it was discovered that uranium salts emitted rays that resembled x-ray in their penetrating power. 
So it was demonstrated that this radiation, unlike phosphorescence, did not depend on an external source of energy, but seemed to arise spontaneously from uranium itself. You know, like phosphorescence, like you like you put a UV light on phosphorus or something, or, you know, it's like glow in the dark, whereas uranium just spontaneously glows in the dark. And not as healthy. And it's less healthy. Marie decided to look into uranium rays as a possible field of research for, the, for a thesis. Using Pierre's electrometer, she discovered that uranium rays caused the air around the sample to conduct electricity. Using this technique, her first result was finding that the activity of the uranium compounds depended only on the quantity of uranium that was present. She hypothesized that the radiation was not the outcome of the interaction of molecules, but more, more likely uh, must come from the atom itself. This hypothesis, Travis, was an important step in disproving the ancient assumption that atoms were indivisible. Yes, that's, some, that's something really important. So th- that she started to think that there might be something smaller than an atom, which was, which was really revolutionary, actually. So curious systematic studies included two uranium minerals, pitchblende and torbonite, which is also known as chalcolite. And her electrometer showed that pitchblende was four times as active as uranium itself, and chacolite twice as active. So she thought something funny was going on there. She concluded that if her earlier results, which was saying that, you know, if the quantity of uranium determines radioactivity, then these two minerals must contain small quantities of some other substance that was far more active than uranium. And in fact, in 1898, she discovered that the element thorium was also radioactive. And around this time, Pierre was increasingly intrigued by her work and by, by mid-1898, he was so invested in it that he decided to drop his work on crystals and join her instead. In July of 1898, Curie and her husband published a joint paper announcing the existence of an element which they named polonium in honor of their native Poland, which would be another 20 years remaining uh, to partition among three empires. Right. So on the 26th of December in 1898, the Curies announced the existence of a second element, which they named radium, from the Latin word for ray. In this course of their research, they also coined the word radioactivity. So you can see all this is kind of coming together. We still we know this these basic elements from uh, from from school, from even high school. Polonium, we know radium, we know we know radioactivity, and it all started with this wife and, and husband duo putting yeah. this together. So on on 19th of April 1906, Pierre was killed in a road accident. Walking across the Rue Dauphine in heavy rain, he was struck by a horse-drawn vehicle and fell under its wheels, causing his skull to fracture. Curie was devastated by her husband's death. I mean, she took it pretty hard. Um, in 1911, there was kind of a scandal that happened. So this is a good five years after her husband's death, death I should point out. But it was revealed that in 1910 to 1911, Curie had conducted an affair that lasted about a year with physicist with Paul Langeval, a former student of Pierre's. He was a married now Paul was a married man who was estranged from his wife. This resulted in a press scandal that was exploited by her academic opponents. Curie, who was then in her mid forties, was five years older than Langevin and was portrayed in the tabloids as a foreign Jewish home record. And by the way, she she wasn't even Jewish. She was away for a conference in Belgium when the scandal broke. And upon her return, she found an angry mob in front of her house and had to seek refuge. Um, so she, she kind of moved in with her daughters for a while and sometimes that, you know, moved in with a friend. But, okay, so the scandal aside, she was actually the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the only woman 
to win in two fields and the only person to win in multiple sciences. So, the only person, period. Well, I tell you, she, she not only broke the glass ceiling, she set a standard. And I, and I think that it, it must have been so much more difficult. You can see the jealousy here. You just mentioned that uh, her opponents, her opponents yeah, took yeah, want, wanted yeah. to take advantage of, of, of her, her personal life. And, uh, you know, I think there's probably common for the time. And I, I think she survived all that. So there's a, there's a lot to be admired in, in her. During World War I, Curie saw a need for uh, field radiological centers near the front lines to assist battlefield surgeons. After a quick study of radiology, anatomy, and automotive mechanics, she procured X-ray equipment vehicles, auxiliary generators, and developed mobile radiography units. Uh, which came in to be popular, known as Petite Curies, Little Curies. She became. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I think that this story is just amazing. Yeah. Like she had to study anatomy and automotive, automotive mechanics to create her own little X-ray mobile devices. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's, it's know, incredible. Yeah. yeah it, it, she became a director of the Red Cross Radiology Service, Services and set up Fran, uh, France's first military radiology center. Uh, operation, uh, operational and expanded operations throughout the entire war. Yeah. So in, in 1915, Curie produced these hollow needles containing radium emanation, which is a colorless radioactive gas given off by radium and later identified as radon to be used for sterilizing infected tissue, which is not the safest thing maybe, but no. depending, depending on how it's used, I guess. Again, right. it's the dose, right? Um, she provided the radium from her own one gram supply and it's estimated that over a million wounded soldiers were treated with her X-ray units. That that blows my mind. Like, well, that's you, you can imagine the the amount of, of wounded soldiers in World War One, especially on, on the French side. Yeah. Um, what blows my mind even high. more than that is that she never received any formal recognition for this from the French government, even to this day. Oh, that's made up after her death. But, okay. Okay. Um, she was also the first woman to become a professor at the University of Paris. In 1921, U.S. President Warren G. Harding received her at the White House to, pre- to present her with the one gram of radium collected in the United States. Mm-hmm. All right, interesting. Uh, before the meeting, recognizing her growing fame abroad and embarrassed by the fact that she had no French uh, official um, distinctions to wear in public, the French government then offered her the Legion of Honor Award, but she refused. Yeah. Right, so uh, that just yeah, again, that kind of blows my mind. The French government was just chauvinistic about it; like they just never recognized her so, for anything because you know, they were embarrassed that she had nothing on, you know, on her lapel when yeah, she went over to meet the president exactly. of the United States. Then she, they tried to give her something, and she refused it. Yeah. So in 1922, she became the uh, a fellow in the French Academy of Medicine, and she also traveled to other countries, appearing publicly and giving lectures in Belgium, Brazil, uh, Spain, and Czechoslovakia. In 1920, for her 25th anniversary of the discovery of radium, the French government established a stipend for her. Um, its previous recipient was Louis, Louis Pasteur, who uh, died in 1895. Yep, as in the pasteurizer. That's right. Yep. Okay, so in 1930, she was elected a member of the International Atomic Weights Committee, where she served until her death. And, and this is the hard part. Yeah, so yeah. she well, she visited Poland for the last time in 1934, and a few months later, on 4th of July... 1934. She died at the um, at a at a sanitarium in in Passy in in Haute Savoie from aplastic anemia, believed to be to have been contracted from her long term exposure to radium. In fact, yeah, because the damaging effect of the this kind of ionizing radiation basically weren't known at the time of her work. I mean, you know, she was a, a real pioneer in this regard. So she didn't use any kind of safety measures whatsoever. 
right? In fact, she'd carried test tubes containing, containing radioactive isotopes in her pocket, and she stored them in her desk drawer. And remarking, on, she even, you know, she kind of commented on the faint light that the substances gave off in the dark, which today, you red know. Red flag, red flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, she was exposed to x-rays from unshielded equipment while serving as a radiologist in the field, in field hospitals during World War I. And although her many decades of exposure to radiation caused chronic illnesses, including near blindness due to cataracts and her ultimately her death, she never acknowledged the health risks of radiation exposure. So, so even as it was happening, you know, she was kind of chalked it up to old age and, you know, other things. So She was interred in the cemetery in Chico uh, along with her husband, Pierre, 69, uh, 60 years later in 1995, in honor of, her, of their achievements, the remains of both were transferred to the uh, Pantheon in Paris. Uh, she became the first and so far the only woman to be honored uh, with interment in the uh, Pantheon and her on her own merits. Travis, what I think what, what is of interest here is that she was spared by, by her death in 1934 of seeing her native Poland uh, being taken over by the Nazi regime. Um, and she was also spared seeing t- taking part in the radioactive experiments that led to maybe the, the, the hydrogen bomb and a few other things. So yeah, she didn't see point. that to the fruition. Uh, that would have been of interest if she did survive that. She probably would have weighed in pretty significantly mm-hmm. uh, in some of those movements. Uh, but uh, she really led a very full life. Yeah. In fact, to this day, her papers from the 1890s are still considered too dangerous to handle. Like, they're all radioactive. Have you heard this No, before? I haven't heard that. Yeah. A, so even, wow. her, even her cookbook... Is highly radioactive. Her papers are kept in a lead-lined box, or in lead-lined boxes, and those who want to see them have to wear protective clothing, like lead-lined, you know, radioactive. Does, does that make you think about the <laughs> treatments that she gave some of these wounded World War One French soldiers? Yeah, maybe maybe they got through with some of the effective see, I, tissue. I don't know, because because she was constantly exposed to it for years. So even even I think even even injecting them with radon gas. I think is is a drop in the bucket compared to the radioactivity that you know she walked around with vials of, of polonium and stuff. And, so so maybe yeah. maybe the person that was helping her out quite a bit would have been some yeah. of that subject to. So this was really yeah, yeah. and we yeah. yeah we talked about like radium poisoning. She obviously has has a huge legacy that that she's left behind. For instance, as a result of Rutherford's experimentation with alpha radiation, the nuclear atom was first postulated. So in medicine, the radioactivity of radium appeared to offer a means by which cancer could be successfully attacked, which, you know, something we still do still today. Still do today, absolutely. Now, Albert, there's an interesting quote from Albert Einstein, and, and he basically remarked that she was probably the only person who could not be corrupted by fame. She kept turning down these awards by the French government and was kind of humble until her death, you know, always helpful, trying to help, help people. And as one of the most famous female scientists today. To date, Marie Curie has become an icon in the scientific world, and she has honors just thrown at her from across the globe, um, even pop culture. There's In a 2009 poll carried out by a new scientist, Marie Curie was voted the most inspirational woman in science, period. Um, Poland and France declared 2011 the year of Marie Curie, and the United Nations declared that this would be the international year of chemistry, basically because of her. Uh, November 7th, Google celebrated the anniversary of her, ba- of her birth with a special Google Doodle. You know what I'm talking about? Right, at the top yeah. of the pages. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the 10th of December, the New York Academy of Sciences celebrated the centenary of Marie Curie's second Nobel Prize in the, in the 
presence of the Princess Madeleine of Sweden. Besides her Nobel Prizes and even you know winning two in multiple sciences, she also received all kinds of other awards like, so the Nobel Prize in Physics was one, the Davy Medal, the Matucci Medal, the Elliott Crescent Medal, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, um, Franklin Medal of the American Philosophical Society. She was even on a Soviet postage stamp. Wow, that's saying something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she she had, she basically had a whole trophy case full of full of stuff that was she probably most of it was not seen by her. It was done posthumously. No, this this was all during her lifetime. Well, those I just mentioned were done during her lifetime. But um, yeah, the, there's the curry, which is the symbol capital C lowercase i, which is a unit of radioactivity. So even if you're talking about you know like a Geiger counter can measure curies, basically, I guess that's. I don't. I don't even know. I'm just making this up as I go along. <laughs> the element with the atomic number 96 was named curium after her. Uh, there's three radioactive minerals also named after the Curies: curite, sklodovskite, and kuprovsklodovskite. And many universities and other places around the world are named after her. For instance, in 2007, a metro station in Paris was renamed to honor both of the Curies. There's a Polish nuclear research reactor named Maria, which is, you know, after her. And the asteroid 7000 Curie is obviously named after her. There's also a KLMM, uh, there's a KLM McDonnell Douglas MD-11 uh, named after her, or named in her honor. There's another interesting little tidbit is that in 1944, during the Second World War, you know the, the Warsaw Uprising against the Nazis, or the, the Nazi German occupation? Her monument was damaged by gunfire, and after the war, it was decided to leave the bullet marks on the statue on his pedestal, so you can still see like Nazi, or you know, bullets from the fighting on on the on Curie's statue. There's all kinds of there's a couple movies and plays made about her life. Um, she's on bills. We mentioned the the Soviet stamp, but on also on other stamps and coins around the world. She was featured on the Polish uh, late 1980s. 20,000 Zloty banknote, and also on the last French 500 franc note before the franc was replaced by the euro. So, yeah, all, all kinds of, of recognition, a lot of it after her death, but all kinds of recognition. So to at least give some connection to alchemy, we'll, we'll call it transmutation through radioactive de- decay. So transmutation does, in fact, happen in nature. What, what I mean is one element does turn to another element in nature, through radioactive decay, for instance, uranium and thorium transmutate, quote-unquote, which really it, it decays into radium, which decays into radon gas. So there's our connection to alchemy. Now, but, now, but wait, you promised something. I did. So how does one really make gold? And I'm talking making gold synthetically. And I mean real 24-carat AU atomic number 79, no gilded silver stuff. I mean the real deal, okay? So gold was actually synthesized. So the alchemists didn't have it all wrong. This is actually possible. The first time this was done was in 1924 by a Japanese physicist, Hantaro Nagaoka, from Mercury, in fact. So the alchemists were on the right track in in some ways. By neutron bombardment. Even though the neutron wasn't even discovered until 1932. So this is why I say that uh, Marie coming up with the hypothesis that there are subatomic particles, basically, is what, you know, um, she was on the right track. So there are, we know this now, and, and one of those is a neutron. And by this bombardment, they were able to change mercury, a, a specific isotope of mercury, 
to gold. Mind you, if you create gold this way, your gold will be radioactive. So there's a rub. Which brings us back to a, a term that Marie, Marie Curie actually coined. So there you have it. If you're not afraid of radioactivity, you can just go ahead and use a nuclear reactor to irradiate pl platinum or mercury. And this can also create, you, you actually change the element from platinum or mercury to gold. Now, you don't want to change platinum to gold. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, now, only certain isotopes of mercury can be, can, be, can be converted in this way. So if you really want to convert more of your mercury that you have laying around, which you shouldn't have laying around, by the way, into gold, you'll need a particle accelerator. Now, this sounds expensive, but China is building one at the fraction of the normal, the normal, quote-unquote, I should stop making air quotes on the show, by the way, <laughs> the normal cost. But even that will create gold at a far, far higher cost than just going to your local jeweler. You'll also need some 120 to 500 kilowatts of electricity, which, which actually, if you think about it, is nothing compared to the 1.21 gigawatts in the flux capacitor required from Back to the Future. Exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's nothing. It's, you just go down, get your uh, 500 Thank you for kilowatts. bringing that mid-'80s reference in. I feel, I feel good. Yeah. So now even mining gold, believe me, folks, I had to look up these numbers. I didn't know this off the top of my head. Um, I did my research here. Even mining gold can take 25 kilowatts per hour per gram to produce. That's, that's a hefty number. That's a lot of electricity. A U.S. household uses one kilowatts a year. One kilowatt a year. So that's 25 kilowatts an hour for one gram of gold. So not only that, but a ton of toxic ore is dumped for every 30 grams found. That's a ton of toxic ore is dumped for every 30 grams. So maybe let's just go back to our regular show where we can create gold out of mercury, sulfur, and salts, shall we? It sounds cheaper. Okay. It's, yeah, and less uh, toxic waste. So when you promised our Actually, listeners... Actually, not, not necessarily. <laughs> Don't forget I have a book out. It's called The Alchemy Booklet. It's on Amazon. So, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's 99 cents. It's basically instead of a donate button. So if you want to help, out, help us out with server costs here, take a look. Consider buying the, my book. Consider giving it a five-point rating because really, it's really good. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks, and take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page, or Twitter, at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.